and to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Just one note you need to make before we dismiss the classes today. On that visitor's contest that's lasting the first 11 months of the year, the rule, part of the rules that I, we came up with is that, well, first of all, let me back up. I, I talked to Sister Playa when I had the idea, and we did a little research, and she said, it'll cost you $2,500 to send two people to Hawaii and house them for a week. I said, all right, so set back enough money so that on December 1, we're able to do that. But as I started thinking about it, I said, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to put $2,500 of my own money out if you bring two visitors and no one brings any of them. I, I, it's incentive to work. I know you may think, oh, this is just, oh, sacrilege. But call it what you want, all right? Trying to get people to work a little bit. And anyway, I, I thought about this. I thought, if, if I'm going to pay $2,500 out, then I think you ought to at least bring a minimum of 25 visitors. We're talking about almost an entire year. And if that sounds ridiculous, I, I, I'm trying to, trying to help you win here. I'm allowing you to bring a first-time visitor three times. We'll count them as a visitor. So if you bring somebody three times, you get, that's three for you. If you teach them a Bible study, and we, and we not because of the contest, but because this is about souls. This is, not about, this is not about getting a visitor that shows up twice and we never see them again. I'm not even interested. I'm, I'm well beyond that. This isn't Kmart, okay? I'm well beyond that. The ultimate goal, the reason we do this is so that a year from now, there can be a brand new soul sitting right here or sitting right there. So if you, if you bring them and you teach them a Bible study about the importance of being born again, John 3, 1 through 7, it's all there. And we dunk them down in that baptismal tank in Jesus' name and they get the glorious gift of the Holy Ghost. See, you thought your work stops when you come to church with me. Well, I'm going to count them five times if you do that. If they're born again in the church, I'm going to let you count them five times if they show up. That's too simple. That's too simple. 25. I hope you've been inviting people. Backsliders. Strangers. It is time to grow. And 3 and 2 of Revelation said to strengthen the things that remain which are ready to die. That's talk. if I could put it in, in our terminology, that's talking about us. It's God telling me, strengthen these hands that are here every service and every... Wednesday and Sunday, and they're being faithful, supporting, and working. Strengthen them so that they can... All right. Have we dismissed everybody then? Teachers have gone out already? No? What are you waiting on? Okay. Joking. I'm joking. Go ahead, please. I wonder why Rob is standing there staring at me. Before I get to my title, I want to say that I did my research on Webster, and Sister Carla and I 
batted the idea back and forth. Well, do you think I'm using slang or not? I verified everything, all right? Not with the slang Webster either. There's one of those out. You heard people say it forever when you're in conversation. They use, they use the word irregardless. Well, there's no such word. But it's in the slang Webster's now. So you can't say that to them anymore. That's not the right way to use that. They're like, oh, really? <laughs> I am reading from Matthew chapter 5. The Bible said, for I say unto you, that except your righteousness exceed, shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, don't kill, because if you kill, really the, the Hebrew, the Greek word here means murder with intent. Whosoever shall do that shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka or Reka, that just simply means stupid one or fool. Even if you disagree with me, or I disagree with you, that stuff should have been left back in junior high school, right? And he gives this stern, this harsh three verses of Scripture that we so easily just skim right over. And he ends this by saying, we'll be in danger of hell fire. Now, you don't have to spell that out for me, Jesus. That's just very plain to me. It's very plain to me. Feel the air go out of the balloon just already now? My title today is Beggars Can't Be Choosy. Beggars can't be Choosy. You've heard the term all your life, haven't you? Most of you. Can't be choosers, can't be choosy. Like the guy that, you know, hasn't worked for a year and he borrows for a living because he hasn't got he has no income. And he gets a job offer and he says, Ah, that's not enough pay for me. I'm like, well, I'm tired of paying your rent, son. You can't be choosy right now. That's, that's what that means. Beggars can't be choosy. Brother, play a leader some prayer. Thank you, Lord. Bless your name, God. Trust you, Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Praise your worthy name. Praise your worthy name. Praise your worthy name, God. Yes, Jesus, I magnify your name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Maybe seated. Beggars can't be choosy. You have to know this before I proceed out of the first line of the first verse of our text. Jesus is teaching right here out of what most biblical people of knowledge with the original text say is his greatest sermon ever. I know we don't think, most of us don't think like categorizing, I like that preaching better than that preaching. I like your thought here better than your thought there. But they say that when Jesus 
taught this message of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, that it accomplished more, it was attended by more, it was more vibrant, more electric, it just flowed, it worked. Those are my terms of what you read in a book. This was his greatest sermon deliverance ever. He's talking about blessed are they, and blessed are ye, and blessed are they. Sermon on the Mount. Good thing to memorize too if you're ambitious about memorizing scriptures. Go back to the first part of chapter 5. But I'm never, I'm never at a loss for ideas or thoughts when I listen to a lot of radio and Christian ideas and uh, apologetic type deliverances. And I'm just bewildered at how frequently you hear things made into icons or idols like John 3.16. I love John 3.16. Jesus spoke John 3.16. But religious people have made it into something as if it's an island in and unto itself. I got news for you. John 3.16 at the Major League Baseball All-Star Game on a placard, if that's the best testimony you've got, I talked to you a month or two ago on a Wednesday night about, maybe it's Wednesday night, but about the most abused scripture in the New Testament. And that was Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. It's so abused. It's so misused for personal gain. But if there's anything that follows as a 1A in scripture, if Matthew 7, 1 is number one, then 1A, not two, but 1A has to be John 3, 16. Brother, let me just encourage you. There's 31,189 verses in the Bible. And every single one of them, God spoke with exuberant zeal. With exuberant zeal. I love John 3.16 and I love Matthew 7.1. But I'm trying to get somewhere with this thought. We make big deals out of things and in the same setting, That Jesus was talking about, blessed are ye, blessed are they, blessed is he. He just jumps into the middle of this sermon with this, I got a warning for you. I mean, out of nowhere, Jesus, don't you know it's flowing, man? Don't get all negative on me now. Come on, it's flowing. Be positive. People are smiling, Pastor. Don't go off on that negative stuff. Well, Jesus, just in the middle of this sermon, he says, I have to tell you something very important, though. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you ain't going nowhere but a hot place. Where did that come from? Where did that come from?
Oh, we shout about blessed are the meek. Look at all. We're all grinning. Blessed are the merciful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he's got to be talking to us. He's got to be talking to that visitor that walked in back there, and they're all angry and upset about something, and they're trying to send the pastor a message with their eyes. I've been doing this 30 years, folks. Jesus was talking to whosoever will. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Thaddeus, Thomas, James, the less. He was talking to all of them. Except your righteousness exceeds. It's almost like we read the text and it doesn't, I say we, you, me, human nature, humankind, and it doesn't even register on my conscience meter. It passes by like a lure in front of a fish that's completely disinterested. I, and I, I wouldn't, I'm sorry, I wouldn't walk across the street to combat fish if God himself guaranteed me the world record king salmon. And we, come here, brother. Come here, brother. And we had to fish like this. Nope, not interested. Have it all. You can have my space. You can have it. But I would, I'd drive all night long for a secluded trout stream, a secluded little trout stream where there's nothing but me and the ravens and the eagles. Oh, Jesus. Can't wait till August 1st. Hallelujah. Anyway, let me get focused here, all right? Sometimes, sometimes we, we, we look at the picture incorrectly. We, we want it to be a moment, you know, a watershed moment, high water thought. We want everything to do with God to be a place that it just, I smile, I caress my, my heart. And those are good moments. But anyway, have you ever been in one of those trout streams or pools where maybe it's not too deep and you can see down to the bottom and there's those trout in there and you're just, whoosh. come on, bite that thing. And you, a thousand times, you drag it right in front of his nose. He just sits there like, completely uninterested. To me, Seems like, Brother Toast, and we read texts like this sometimes, and we're that fish. We're not interested. If you don't make me laugh, if you don't make me smile, if you don't make me feel all warm and fuzzy, I'm not interested. I'm going to show you some things, though, here. Profound things, in my mind, in my opinion. Today, in the Christian world as a rule, being spiritual is the goal. These are things that I agree with all these statements I'm about to make, if they're in proper context. But so often I hear them and they're in, they're in arrogant context. You got a word for me? I got a sign. God spoke to me. 
And I believe in every single one of those issues working and functioning inside the body in proper context. But not in some loose wire arrogance of look at me, I have a special connection to God that you don't have. I got news for you. God can talk to a donkey. Just because he speaks to me doesn't mean I'm something. It's not mysticism, it's spirituality. Jesus said in John 6, 63, that the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. I personally believe that you are never more in the spirit than when you are in the word of God. Ever, ever. Do I believe in words from God? Of course I do. Do I believe in a sign from God? Of course I do. Dad told me a story years ago, and I'm sure I've related it. I'm, I'm, I'm over-apologizing. I'm just going to tell you the story. And um, we had separated in the woods for the whole day. And we, somewhat, sometime during the day, I heard shots where he was supposed to be. And we met up again that night, and he'd shot a bull. And he said, son, I want to tell you this story. I want to tell you this story. He said, I was going this direction, and he's telling me all the geography of it all. And he said, I'd, I'd given up on this little notion I had for going that direction. I went over here, and he said, son, I'm telling you. He said, I was sitting down, just taking a break. And he said, this raven just kept flying over. And he said, he'd make bigger circles, and he was heading in the direction that I had given up on going. And he said, I have nothing else to do. He said, so I just took it that I'm, I'm just going to go raven following for the day. And he said, I don't know how long it was, but he got up there where he was originally headed to, but give up the idea. Boom. He said to me, he said, son, you think that might have been a sign? I said, well, who cares what I think? You went because the raven was going that direction. Oh, I've tried it a hundred times since, and it never worked, Brother Boyle. Never. I've followed every raven in the woods, Mike. Mike, I followed every raven. I'm like, I'm going after that dude right there. An hour later, I'm quitting. I believe in signs, Brother Larry. I do. But I believe sometimes we make things up because we want them to be there. Real spirituality always is filtered through humility. If you have to tell us how spiritual you are, I'm not interested. But this is the point I'm trying to make. Jesus doesn't bring up spirituality here. He brings up righteousness. We don't, we, you don't hear that phrase a lot. You don't use, hear usage of that word anymore, hardly. Except your spirituality exceed the spirituality of the scribes and Pharisees. Except your symbolism and ideals and wonderment. No, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that that the scribes and Pharisees possess, you're not going to heaven. Webster says this, and I'm also going to throw in the last word is from Strong Concordance. Webster just says, righteous means morally right. Superb, sterling, and Mr. Strong's Concordance says, Holy! So unless 
your superb qualities, your holy ambitions, your morally right structure exceeds. If I were to ask you this morning, would you rather be spiritual or would you rather be righteous? Now, I've already set the table at the context. You're going to say righteous now. But if we just talked about it 20 minutes ago, if I just say, you'd rather be really spiritual, getting words from God, signs from heaven, or would you rather be, if you had to choose, crazy thought, but if you had to choose, would you rather be righteous or spiritual? Hmm? Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. One thing I believe that this ultra-spiritualism does when it's used incorrectly is it cheapens real Bible salvation. If I, if I hear one more person talk about salvation like it's something that can just be picked up like a tissue off the cart, you realize what price we paid? Hmm? He didn't talk about signing no church card, shaking no preacher's hand. He hung on the cross. All right, but I'm getting off here. Listen closely to this. Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, you've said that seven times already, Pastor, because I want to sink in. With where I'm going, I want that to sink in. if it doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if I were to ask most of you today, or you would ask me, do you think, in privacy, if, I, if you ask me, Ron Herring, do you think you're more righteous than the average Pharisee? I'm going to say, well, yeah, probably, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I, I'm sure if I ask any of you, you're not going to tell me, oh, no. In fact, most of us would think, how dare you even ask me that? A Pharisee? What was, what was their badge of honor? Why did Jesus scold them so often? Because they said one thing and did another. They, they didn't practice what they preached. They were the dad that told everybody else how to raise their kids, and they were, they were always missing in action. Well, so we would think, Jesus, you say, all I have to do is exceed their righteousness? No problem. You're looking at me like I'm... You, you wouldn't even feel like you're bragging. If Jesus, all you got to do is exceed the righteousness of that hypocrite? Shoe in! I got it! Wouldn't you think that way, sir? If you had time to meditate on it, all I have to do is those bunch of guys over there that, that say one thing and do another, they tell you don't start fires and they go over and start fires. They tell you don't drink from that water and they're over there drinking the water. All I have to do is be better than them. No problem. This is going to be easy. 
Brother Lance, wouldn't you think that would be the obvious response? All I have to do is that? Let's just itemize a couple of things here that Jesus himself mentions. These are noted by Jesus' own words. Matthew 23, 15 is where I'm reading from. Matthew 23, 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's preaching now, man. He said, you compass or compass sea and land to make one proselyte convert. And when he's made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Listen to this. I know what we're focusing on here, and we should, but I want you to look inside the inside. Jesus said, the Pharisees, compass or compass sea and land to make one single convert. They will get in the boat, the Maserati, the Rolls Royce, or the Ford, and they will go across sea and land for one single soul. Hey, he didn't, he didn't say, I've heard this about you. He noted it about them. Number one, number one by Jesus' own confession, the Pharisees worked very hard for one convert. Say what you want. The Pharisees were serious about outreach. Uh-oh. 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 Remember what I said? We got to exceed. They would compass land and sea. And bless it, most of their traveling was on foot. They might have had a mule or a horse or a camel. He said, you guys will go to the end of the earth to make one proselyte. Point number one. Pharisees were very evangelistic. That's good preaching, Pastor. Thank you. I thought so too. I know. I know what he says. I know he's about to scold their hide. I know it. Because what they have, they're misusing it. But his own word said, you guys will flat out work for one soul. I don't see no, I don't see no Hawaii contest being mentioned. I don't see no bucket of candy being offered. He just said, you have a cause and you work like dogs to get it done. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Number one, Pharisees, according to Jesus' own words, were evangelistic. Now listen, I don't know what your religious background is, and I'm not trying to lock, lock horns with you here, lock swords with you. I don't happen to agree with anything that false doctrine perpetrates, preachers, tries to cram down my throat. It's not in the Bible, substantiated by two or three witnesses, I don't want to hear it. I believe you've got to be born again of water and of the Spirit. 
You have to repent of your sin, be baptized in Jesus' name by immersion, and be filled with the Holy Ghost, speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives you utterance. That is being born again of water and Spirit. I believe that. But, 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 we got people sitting in church and they shine in that relic, man. Woo! I got the Holy Ghost 73 years ago. Don't you dare cross me. I'll give you peace of my mind. You may have got the Holy Ghost 73 years ago, but it don't have you anymore, okay? All right, let me, let me focus. Let me focus here. I don't believe in anything that tries to preach to my kids false doctrine, to my sheep false doctrine, and there's a lot of them out there. If you were ever been part of the Mormon movement, I'm not slinging mud at anybody. I don't agree with it. I've studied it line upon line with, with some of the people that were my friends. I don't agree with it. I think it's false doctrine. I'm not trying to tell you that you were evil if you happen to like some things they do. But one thing they are serious about. Hi, I'm Joe Smith, and I attend the local... And I asked him one time last year, I said, how many times do people just, as soon as they see you, turn around and walk away? He said, oh, quite frequently. And yet they just keep going, hi, I'm Joe Smith. So, so I'm, I'm not trying to say that they're right. I'm not going to follow them because of their doctrines, erroneous. But I'm going to give you one point. Brother, what if he said to you, except your ambition exceeds the ambition of the Mormon folk down the road. Huh? What if he said that to you? All right. Leaving on me already, huh? Second point I want to make is Matthew 23, verse 23. It's right where we left off for our text, Matthew, or no, it is not, Matthew 23, 23. Warn you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe, mint, anise, cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, faith. Stop. Think, if I had, if I had the power of Selah or Selah, it'd be right here. I'm about to say something to you. These ought you to have done. You know what Jesus is saying here? Listen. You pay tithes of everything you possess, but you've forgotten some things. He said, now you ought to have done that. He's doing this. He's given you five for that. Jesus didn't say, I checked the church books. I see you're doing better. Good job, brother. He knew Pharisees were faithful tithers. Ah, faithful tithers, everything they did, if they found a nickel and they found a dollar, I know they didn't use those coins, but I'm just making it in our, so we understand it. They would hurry off, they would make notation, don't forget, tithe everything, and we got people, do I tithe the gross or the net, uh, do I tithe it? If it doesn't show a profit, what do I do? I'm like, are you kidding me, people? 
Are you kidding me? These cats tithe every single thing that they owned. Every harvest of the crop. Every gain because of their income. They tithe everything so much that the God of all glory said, I know what you do. I know exactly what you do. He didn't say, you wasted all that offering because you, you forgot about weightier matters. Shouldn't have to come to church, what he's saying here, every time and argue about, is, is tithing important? He's saying there's some things we need to go on unto. Oh, oh. You know, I feel like a surgeon with a scalpel in my hand today. I'm getting looks, I'm getting looks like, uh, okay, we know where you're going. Number one, evangelistic. <laughs> Number two, tithers. Listen to this, please. Some of you believe Google more than you do the Holy Bible. I'm smiling, brother. I'm smiling. Google says that of United States church goers, 7.4% are tithe payers. 7.4% of churchgoers in the United States of America pay tithe. I know how they get that. Google, let me tell you, Silicon Valley is anything but religious. That's where Google lives. They said, if you, if you put this notation of how many tithers their numbers show, and in the landscape of every person in the United States, that number drops to 3%. Of course, then he's including non-churchgoers. But churchgoers, 7.4% pay tithe. I, I, I may die tonight, okay, I know that. But with nothing to gain, please listen to me. Sister T.R. said this the other day to me, and I, I, I hope you don't mind me repeating it. I, I'm not, I don't like plagiarism. I'm going to give you credit for it. She said, she said, I believe God gives us the ability to tithe to keep us from becoming lovers of money. Is that how you put it, sis? A shield against the love of money. Number one, they were evangelistic. Number two, they were tithers. Wow. Wow. According to Matthew 9.14, sis, I'm going on to the third issue here. Matthew 9.14. You can't outgive the Lord what I was, where I was going with that. You just can't. You can't outgive... I, I, Now, in 30 years of pastoring, you, I know you probably don't want to hear this, but it's just the way I am. Sometimes I talk too much, all right? But I have, seen, I have seen everything you can imagine when it comes to people and whether they support or don't support. I have seen leadership that confessed to me they've been sending tithe for months to other preachers in this church. 
thinks that way? Who thinks like that? I've seen people tell me that they send money to radio preachers and they call it their tithe. I'm like, who, who thinks like that? Who thinks that way? Normally, it's people who weren't born into a solid, stable church environment. We call them church hoppers. Ah, pastor may be mad today. I'm going to go down there. I hear they got good singing down there. Look at all these looks I'm getting. Oh, oh, I heard they got a new drummer down there. Dude used to play in a rock band. Hey, hey, let's go down there for a while. See, God knows everything about your life. What you value, what you idolize, what you cheat on, what you lie about, what you steal, what you take that don't belong to you. He knows all. So by his own words, he said they're evangelistic, they're tithers. And Matthew 9, he said, then came to him the disciples of John saying, do we, why do we and the Pharisees fast oft? They just cut off the end of that word, okay? Often. He said, Pharisees fast a lot. A lot! I don't know how many of these I gave you. Matthew, did I give you Luke 5.33? They said to him, why the disciples of John fast often, make prayers? Likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, here's eat and drink. Jesus knew they had a reputation. These boys fasted. Is anybody thinking ahead of me right now where I'm going with this? They're evangelistic. Oh, they're horribly wrong. They got bad attitude. But they worked, they worked, and they worked. And they tithe. And they fast. And Matthew 23, 14. Whoa, and the scribes and Pharisees is about to spank them again. Hypocrites, you devour widows' houses for a pretense. You make long prayers. I'm going to come back to that word pretense, but therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Listen, it's common knowledge. The Pharisees were like the civil slash religious leaders of the community. They were the mayor as well as the head of the religious council. They made the speed limit signs for the chariots, and they also went in and started prayer service. They were known to be eloquent speakers of prayer. They got invited to Chamber of Commerce meetings. They got invited to grand openings of grocery stores. I'm not exaggerating, folks. They had a reputation. They were the eloquent of the community. They were invited because they wanted him to stand up and make long, beautiful, oratory prayers. Dudes could pray. And they prayed long prayers. 
Sure, they were a bunch of knotheads. And nowhere in life are we allowed to take that hypocrisy as a righteous example. But I'm asking you to look inside the inside with me. They make long prayers. And they stand on the street corners. And they get paid. People pay those cats to come pray. They did. Oh, get elder so-and-so. Get bishop so-and-so. Get pastor so-and-so. We're going to open grand opening. Car wash grand opening. We want them to pray over it. So according to Jesus' own remarks, the Pharisees were evangelistic. They were tithers. They fasted. Anybody like fasting? I hate it. It hurts everything. If you fasted any length of time before, after about, I don't know, so many hours, People say, oh, drink lots of water. Water makes me sick after about two days. Don't even look at me with a bottle of water. It hurts. Jesus said, you read it with me. They're evangelistic. They're tithers. They fasted and they prayed. And here he is teaching. Hey, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Thaddeus, Thomas, James, unless, unless your righteousness exceeds. Uh, do we, am, I, am I quick to say no problem now? I'm a shoe in here. Got it. Eleven oh nine, eleven forty six, thirty seven minutes I've been. I'm working on a message out of Romans fourteen one and fifteen one, where Paul warns about how we handle or deal with the weaker brothers. But in this particular case here today. I started thinking about this, Brother Larry. According to what I read to you out of Webster and Strong's Concordance, to be righteous, which Jesus said we should strive to be, not self-righteous, but holy, pure, moral. Brother Lance, honestly, the more I think about being those things, I think, Oh, Jesus. How in the world can I even get in the topic of conversation? I know the thoughts I have. I know the anger I deal with. I know. <laughs> I know stuff about me you don't know. Uh... Sorry, if you, if you boil it down and strain every ounce of righteousness out of Ron Herring, 
life, you're going to have a pretty empty cup. When I really start thinking about Brother Trace, I think, I don't even know if I could come up to. I know I couldn't come up to their arrogant, hypocritical level of righteousness. Because I know what I thought about you the other day. I know what I said about that person that cut me off in traffic. I guess we got, I'm preaching to the angelic choir today, aren't I? All the angels are staring me down today. Hallelujah. They're like, mm, burning holes in my mind with your eyes. He knows what's in your pocket right now. And what you last looked at on that phone or computer, he knows it all, brother. And I start thinking, I, I'm embarrassed, Lord. I love Isaiah 64, 6, when he said, all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag. It's like a filthy rag. That's there. Unless your righteousness exceeds. Filthy rag. How in the world am I ever going to climb out of that? I'm going to tell you how. You ready? The problem was this. Everything about the Pharisees' righteousness was strictly on the outside. Everything about their walk was out external, outside. That's what made them hypocrites. They had every little standard covered. Inside they were wicked. It all the rules down pat, but it was a pretense. It was a facade. It was an act. Oh, they were hardcore serious about winning that one soul. They were the most evangelistic humans on planet Earth. The church never suffered because they were the tithing faithful. Boy, them dudes fasted. Prayed. If, if, if you just take my life, God, and compare it to those four factors, I'm in trouble. It was an act. It was pretentious. They did all of that, but they didn't do it because their motives were pure. They didn't do it because they really wanted to see revival. Here's the answer. Jesus said it this way. Even though you realize your righteousness is a dirty rag. Seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Yeah, thank you, Brother Walter. His righteousness. The Lord Jesus never has a shortage of purity or morality or holiness. 
God is never at a loss for being pure about His ambitions. God is so pure about His ambitions that when I am impure, He will still love me. God is so holy about His plan for your life that even when you are thinking wicked about Him and hateful about the church, He still loves you. He still loves you. He still loves you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His holiness. Purity. All right, so here's how I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm nothing in and of myself. So i got to start seeking His. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat or drink. I can't find this in things. I can't find this that I'm searching for in nicer things or worse things. But it is righteousness, peace, and joy... Please save your breath if you want to try to convince me that the Holy Ghost is not important in your walk with God. Number one, unless you're born of spirit. Spirit. Jesus said that. You're not even entering into it. So the Holy Ghost isn't a luxury item. Do I want that on the car? It's another $1,000. Don't worry about it. You got to have it, brother. You got to have it. I mean, could you imagine being dumb enough to go to the car lot and buy a vehicle? The owner, the owner guy or the car dealer says, uh, yeah, we have no heater in this car, but we have a hardwired air conditioner on high all the time, and it's a great deal, but it's 25 below outside. And we're at, that's just little things. Don't worry about that. No, this is a necessity. This is a necessity. Guarantee you, I guarantee you, I'm a foot tall looking at any of you right now, that without the Holy Ghost, somewhere in the crossroads of life, the confusion of stress and tribulation and persecution and all the obligations that go with daily life, raising kids and, and, and sending them off and then trying to make a home life out of something, trying to balance your checkbook, all the stuff, not the help of the Holy Ghost in your life, somewhere... I hope you're writing this down, because I mean this in the Holy Ghost. I do have a word for you right here. Somewhere, somewhere without that, you're going to turn left when God's saying turn right. Somewhere, somewhere you're going to stop when God said, no, don't stop here. We need that interruption, that witness of the Holy Ghost. We need something that tells you, no, I don't do that. Oh, that's called women's intuition. Yeah, baloney, sister. Sorry about that. Give me, give me Holy Ghost inspiration. Holy Ghost. Seek the kingdom and His righteousness. But you can't find it in things. It's in the Holy Ghost. The righteousness of God is found in your relationship power of the Holy Ghost. Okay. I know I'm nothing in and of myself. So Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He hath made Him 
to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Previously, in the Holy Ghost. Here it's in Him, Jesus meaning. Because He hung on the cross, the righteousness of God became available to you and I who were dirty, filthy The righteousness of God became available, not because you can play the tuba, but because you qualified as a dirty, unrepentant, vile preacher. And then 54, 17 of Isaiah said, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. You got to get this, though. This is so powerful. We always focus on those first few words there. And they're good. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. No weapon. I love that. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment shall thou condemn. For this is the heritage, look at this, of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me. <laughs> Saith the Lord. So when we sing the song, he paid a debt I did not owe, or no, I could not pay. He paid the debt I could not pay. This is what it's talking about. Our righteousness became available because of the price Jesus paid for you. So oh, oh, now, now I'm seeing it different. Now I see it different. I really can exceed the righteousness of those hypocrites, but not in my own works. Not because of something I did or what I belonged to or some company I worked for. I can exceed their righteousness now because when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. One of my favorite verses in the Pauline epistles is Romans 5, verse 20. And it's, it's longer than this, but I cherry pick out of it the point that I want to make is that we're sin abounded. We're sin abound. He's talking about me! Talking about you! Not talking about hell or the devil, it's talking about you! And so we sit in church looking around. Oh, that, I've never seen that shirt on Brother Michael before. That's interesting. Oh, that's an, that must be a, he must have got that coat for Christmas. Look at that. That's a cool coat, yeah. yeah. Where sin abounded was in Ron Herring's life. Lunchtime. Are anybody thankful for the grace of God today? Yes. <laughs> Where are the vocalists in the house? Where are the praise singers? Anybody show me your hand? I, I can't see anybody right now. When I start singing, you're going to know, you'll understand why I'm asking for someone with a voice here. 
amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Hey, beggars can't be choosy today. I once was lost. Put my title back up there, sis, please. Was blind, but now I see. Come on, that's talking about you and I. Why am I going to nitpick the plan of salvation? I can't afford to be choosy. He did it all for you. Amazing grace. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, I once. Come on, somebody, hallelujah. Sing it one more time. Amen. 